Today we will speak with a television executive producer, a screenwriter, a leader in a counter-terrorist unit, an actor, an author and filmmaking technical consultant, and a Delta Force command leader in Iran and Nicaragua. And they're all the same person. Command Sergeant Major Eric Haney for the entire hour. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Watching America All my life It's panic in America Oh, 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 oh It's trouble in America Please note, a segment of today's show includes a conversation about suicide. It may not be appropriate for all listeners. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Everywhere we go, everywhere we go, people want to know, people want to know who we are, who we are, where we come from, where we come from. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Watching America a man of distinction, a man of honor, and a man of varied talents, including creativity as a writer, uh, as a television writer, as a nonfiction writer, and also as an actor amongst myriad things that he's able to do. But his early life was comprised of working in the U.S. military. Uh, for a number of years, he was working as a member of the 193rd Infantry Brigade. After that, he worked as a ranger for two years uh, in the 75th Ranger Regiment. But he is most known for his work in Delta Force, which was a significant major part of his life's work, dedication to the United States of America and its people. So with great Delight. I welcome Commander Sergeant Major, retired Eric L. Haney. Welcome, sir, uh, to Watching America. Well, thank you, Dr. Campbell. Enjoy it. Well, please call me Alan, and All I right, want okay. to learn not only about what you've done, but I want to learn about you. Uh, one All of the right. things that struck me, and has struck me, actually, by, by some people's evaluation of people in the military is sometimes they, they get characterized or stereotypical imagery mm-hmm. of, of, of almost robotic war machines that have little exactly. feeling and um, limited talents, quite frankly. They just, you know, they're always portrayed pretty one-dimensionally in movies. But when you sit down with persons like yourself, you find that there's a, a large array of interests and talents, and certainly you've proven that with very eclectic abilities that you have. I want to go back to you at the, the initial 
part of your life, uh, your, mm-hmm. your genesis. You were born the 22nd of August in Georgia. Tell me what it was like your childhood. When was the first inkling that you might be interested in a military career? You know, as I look back on it, I actually think that it's uh, the example of the men that I knew. My father, my uncles, grandfathers, they all had been soldiers. Second World War, Korea. First World War, going back to the United States Civil War and even uh, to the American Revolution. And it just, it was somewhat of a rite of passage in those years that a young man was expected to go into the military. Now, not all did, obviously, uh, but but there was an allure to it. And then, uh, looking back now in life of poverty, that was the way out. It took me into the wider, larger world, and it uh, and it certainly did that. So did you actually live in a life of poverty? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I lived under a tin roof. Uh, it's just the way it was. I grew up in the 50s. I was born in the early 50s. And we're always 20 to 30 years behind here in the in the. Uh, in Appalachia, and uh, funds were low. I can remember getting electricity in our house, running water uh, into the house, and a telephone. So it was a different time, much different time. How would you amuse yourself as a boy with such sparse surroundings and limited things to to find for entertainment? Oh, as a little fellow, you play outside, uh, you know, have a large family, number of brothers and sisters. And then once you're old enough, uh, hunt, fish, roam around the mountains, uh, out with your friends. So we made our fun and we made our, our entertainments and our enjoyments. And then I think a large part of it, too, in the formation of, of all of us was... Uh, we're Scots-Irish, the descendants of the Scots-Irish who moved into Appalachia. And storytelling was a huge thing. Uh, at night, sit, and the old folks would tell stories. And, uh, you know, the kids were on the floor at their knees, wide-eyed, taking all of this in. Well, as boys, we tend to sometimes grab sticks. Uh, some people say that the, the males are under attack even from an early age now for, for being inclined towards males, masculine yeah. endeavors yeah and uh, but we grab sticks do you remember doing that uh, you know having a kind of with the kids in the neighborhood oh, most uh, certainly. a, a M- platoon most certainly did you know my mother would tell stories about uh, me as a three-year-old coming in with a stick and she'd ask where have you been I said oh, I've been out hunting bears <laughs> <laughs> must have worked now you actually joined the U.S. forces at seventeen. Do you remember going to a recruiter and, and how you did all that? Oh, I certainly did. Uh, it was on Broad Street in Rome, Georgia, and I made up my mind. Uh, and actually, a couple of friends also. And and, and through the door we went to see. I, I can still remember his name, Carl Colvhouse, Sergeant First Class, and uh, spoke with him. And he wanted to make sure we were serious about what we were doing, uh, and we were. And so the process started. So I was able to join while I was still in high school uh, with the provision that I'd go off to basic training right after graduation. Interesting. Now, did you find that he kind of, if you will, gilded things and made them sound a little bit better than you actually found out? Because that's a common complaint with people. They they, they say they go to a recruiting uh, sergeant and you know they find that things are a little bit different when they get off the bus. Was that your experience? Actually, no, just the opposite. Oh, good. 
just the opposite. He, he painted a very realistic picture, which is the best thing he could have done. Not, not a bit of gilding that lily. I was in basic training, Fort Jackson, uh, South Carolina. And from the first day, I said, man, I love this. This is, this is what I've been looking for for my scant 17 years. Uh, and then later, while I was off to infantry AIT, uh, advanced infantry training at Fort Polk, Louisiana, and from there to West Berlin, Germany. And that was my first assignment with the, uh, with the Berlin Brigade. Did you know early on that it was going to be your career? I mean, were you certainly uh, just committed to the idea, I'm putting in more than 20? No, I didn't. Uh, I joined, when you joined at that time, this was still the draft army. Draft was a two-year uh, commitment. Uh, if you joined as a regular, regular soldier, regular army soldier. It was three years. And my intention was to do three years, see the world a bit, put aside a little bit of money and uh, leave then at the end of that three years and uh, go to college. Well, I'm struck by the influence that um, movies have. Uh, and it's, it's ironic or not ironic, but certainly interesting that you wind up actually working in film and television mm-hmm. and uh, being very much uh, involved with the creative process by one means or another. Um, the kind of movies that we see can have a tremendous impact on the culture and how receptive a culture is yes. to the whole idea of a militaristic lifestyle. So uh, in your native Georgia, we have John Wayne in 1967 doing an extremely unrealistic version of yes. the Green Berets, which is total uh-huh. fantasy. Some people right. would go so far as to say rubbish, yes. but it's shot there in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we go through the end of the 60s into the 70s, and then it's not long before we find films like Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, which give a rather jaundiced view of what happened in mm-hmm. Vietnam. And then we have Platoon, and then we have really uh, inciting films uh, of all kinds of reactions, such as Born on the Fourth of July with Tom, uh, Tom Cruise. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also a shift, too, because suddenly you have films like Top Gun, which uh, in the best sense glorifies the military. So then everyone's mm-hmm. cool and into now the military again. It's all right, go into the Air Force and go into the Army and what have you. You've lived through that entire cycle not only have you lived, Eric, through that entire cycle, you've been a part of it now by the innovation of television uh, programs, uh, working with David Mamet, certainly on The Unit, which you wrote many episodes. Yes. Give me your feedback on this, if you will, well, labyrinth of different attitudes that people have had towards the military based on media and movies. As you said, I believe it does come in ways, but it has to do with cultural perception what, what's you know the view is is shaped externally and then imposed on the look of the military and military life post 911 uh, the the administration president bush and, and vice president cheney and others wrapped themselves in the troops and, and said if if you don't support the war in Iraq and in Afghanistan, then you're not supporting the troops. You're, you're being disrespectful to the troops. And that had a lot to do with driving the perception of the individual soldier. And, uh, and as far as that's gone, I, I applaud that. Uh, but then again, how is that portrayed in film and television? There are almost no veterans working in uh, film and TV. 
And so what happens is a tendency derives scripts from a perception of the screenwriter. And I call it this. It's frat boys with guns. Uh, We've seen those movies here recently. Get, get away from Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and Sylvester Stallone, you know, monosyllabic automatons. Yes. Uh, but, but the more recent ones where there is an attempt to portray the soldiers and the teams and the squads. Because uh, the writer knows what a frat boy is. He knows what 20-year-olds act like. Okay, let's give them some guns. And nothing could be further from the truth. When you look at films like The Deer Hunter, uh, mm-hmm. which had some very arresting scenes in it, mm-hmm. um, are, are you comfortable with films like, you know, you know Michael Cimino made that movie. Uh, are you comfortable mm-hmm. with films like that? Or, you know, there's other films that came out at the time, like Hamburger Hill and things of this nature. Mm-hmm. Injurious to the purposes of the U.S. military? Or are they just a sideline and no real influence whatsoever? Well, they're not documentaries. Uh, they're, they're entertainment with a point of view and an underlying theme that the writer, director, actor is trying to, to get across to an audience. So when, when I see that those films, I just ask myself, what are they attempting to do? And that, that main theme may be what's driving the tale, but, but it's not a, it doesn't tell everything. No one should think of that. I, I had so many questions from people about uh, Apocalypse Now. Is it really like that? No. It, you know, this, this is a, what we're seeing is something really condensed to get it across to you like a spear thrown out of the screen at you. It tells a bit. While we're talking about Hollywood, see, uh, one of the things I do is I teach screenwriting. And um, I know how difficult screenwriting is to construct. Mm -hmm. And I'm amazed at your uh, writing acumen that you can pick up the style, the necessary, not only just the basic things like correct formatting and what have you, but be able to conjure up and come up with scenarios and and stories for Mm -hmm. a weekly series on CBS, having come from a military background when you lived the counterpart reality of all of this and yet at the same time you understand dramatic structure. How did you learn that? I, uh, I don't know. I've, I've read this before. Uh, you can learn to write but no one can teach you to write. That's so uh, true. Uh, the first time I saw a screenplay, uh, David Mamet sent, sent it to me. It's uh, Spartan. And when I read through it, I said, this is, this is an operations order. Wow. That's all it is. It was an operations order, five-paragraph operations order. The format was there, uh, the, the way you structured this. And it's, it's perfect. Tells everyone what they need to do and who's saying what. And with, with a driving engine to it. That at the end, we see where it was going because we have arrived. Uh, it made sense to me. That's the only way I can can express it and and i've found you know as a novelist and as a, a non-fiction writer a screenwriter if you're doing books they're different from screenplays absolutely and, yes and you must understand that as a writer if you can understand that then, then you can go back and forth from one to the other 
because they're two different creatures. Well, one of the greatest voices on uh, the boards, the stage of mm-hmm. the United States is definitely David Mamet and on screen. Most certainly. Most certainly. Um, how did you feel when he first contacted you? Uh, were you? Had you been formally aware of him extensively or was he a name that you'd heard of and just kind of picked up by osmosis? It was a name I'd heard a little bit. and in, in fact, I was fending off offers for a movie. In the, in the rights for, movie rights for my first book, Inside Delta Force. Yes. And uh, and David called. He'd read the book. My wife took the call. I was I was, I was on the phone with a producer in, in uh, Los Angeles about the book. And uh, she told me, said, David Mamet called. And I said, David who? And it's David Mamet. Which David Mamet? And she told me, you know, David Mamet's screen, the playwright. I said, great, what does he want? <laughs> anyway, we... We we spoke and uh, he complimented the book and and you know my, my scribbling ability and said it told said I'm going to do a movie it's based in your world rather than steal all the stuff from you will you come and work with me on it Wow and I said it's a what and he said anything you want to do so he overnighted the script to me and uh, like I said I, I read it man this is really powerful and uh, we went from there. So on that movie, uh, David is notorious for coming into work in the morning on set, tearing that day's pages up, drawing them away, <laughs> rewriting it. Uh, and the first morning he did that with, was the opening scene. And he still writes on his electric typewriter, and he certainly did at that time. And so power line is laid out from the generators, and his typewriter is set on one bucket, and he's sitting on a stump. And we're talking about what would happen in this scene. Uh, there's no dialogue in that scene. And, uh, and finally he said, here, you write it. So wow. wrote, wrote the opening scene and was able to do that a few more times. But David would talk to me throughout making of the film. Just this is why things are done in such a way. This is what we're doing now. This is how we're laying this out. And one of his great mantras that I always keep uh, is an ending. An ending should be surprising yet inevitable. Mm. Mm. And I'd, I'd always used a different phrasing for that. I'd, mine had been, if you're going to pull a rabbit out of a hat at the end, you better have shown the audience a rabbit and a hat somewhere well, prior. <laughs> well said. Well said. Yeah. Now you played the president in in that work, and uh, <laughs> yes. so you, overnight you're taking on two different things. You suddenly are mm-hmm. a co screenwriter, you're an advisor, mm-hmm. and now an actor. How, how did mm-hmm. that come about? That's great. I love it. I think I, I, I still believe David set that up. It was the morning we were going to shoot that scene, and he came over and said. Hey, the actor for this scene hasn't shown up. Eric, go over to a wardrobe and see if they have something that'll fit you. <laughs> uh, so I went over and, and everything was my size. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, aha, there's an indicator here. What a, and, what a generous spirit David Mamet is. Yeah, it's, it's great. Really so. Yeah, really yeah. so. And, and did you guys click right away or, or did it take a week yes, or so for you to, to feel comfortable? No, right off. All right, great. We were off and running with it. Now, after that, the the, the success mm-hmm. of the CBS series, um, you also did Iron Man 2, where you played mm-hmm. General Meade. How did you enjoy being in Iron Man uh, 2? 
with Robert Downey uh, Jr. Again, I never saw Robert. Uh, uh, John Favreau, though, obviously, as the director. That one was another little funny one. I had, uh, had flown out to L.A. to audition also for another part with someone. I don't even recall who it was. And I had that in the morning and then the, this audition in the afternoon for Iron Man. And it was for the part of the senator. No one told me that they they would not send sides on, mm. on any of the Iron Man movies. So no, you have to show up at casting. Right. Let me explain so, for our audience. Sides <laughs> is highlighted, uh, reduced, uh, succinct versions of what your character may say or do. And it's to get <laughs> you to have a feel for how the extended work is going to be for the actual script. So people very often, even on an audition, will read sides or just have uh, uh, segments or something indicative of the characterization that's going to take place. Okay, continue. Absolutely. And and, uh, so I arrive at at the uh, casting office, and I'm dressed for the part, obviously, show up looking like a senator, and go in, and I'm given my sides, and, and it's this long monologue. And I almost thought David wrote it because it was David Mamet type page and a half of, of a monologue. Yes. And he has a very distinctive style of, of writing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is David. This is, this is David. Uh, oh, and they said, are you ready to go? Said, no, I'm not. Uh, I need a place to rehearse. And she said, well, you can go out on the porch. I said, I'm not going to go stand outside of the street and shout. So I wound up in the copier room. <laughs> and I said, I know this guy. I, I, I know this this senator, and I, I'm going to be a Georgia blowhard senator. <laughs> and and uh, so went through it a few times, came back out. Uh, casting director asked, are you ready to go? Yes, let's do this. And wham, went through it. And she's sitting there grinning, and her grin is getting larger and larger. And finished, she said, where are you from? from Georgia. Oh, are you happy with this? And I said, I am, but let's do another take. It's always good to have, have another one. So I went through that and finished up uh, and had a call that evening that said, oh, you're in the movie, but you're not the senator. You'll be playing a general. I wow. said, do I need to come in? I said, no, no. We, we have what we need from you. That's great. That's mm-hmm. great. Um you were a dialogue coach and advisor for the video game Call of Duty Black Ops. Yeah, I wrote the dialogue uh, for that game, yes. Now, let me just ask you a question. Some people mm-hmm. might say, and I'm not inclined to necessarily agree, but some people might mm-hmm. say that video games, by their very nature, tend to trivialize the serious work which you have actually done. Do you have any caution in that regard yourself, uh, not only being an actor and, and a writer and, and participating, particularly in this, this Call of Duty Black Ops video game where you, you provided the, the written material for, for lines? Mm-hmm. Um, do you worry that there are many people who, you know, the, again, speaking of stereotypical images, these, somebody, you know, consuming eight pizzas on their couch and they like to think of themselves as a, as a warrior because they can blow people away and have, you know, the equivalent of squib blood things go off with their characters. Do you think it trivializes um, the contributions made by you and your brethren and sisterhood in the military? I don't. I don't give it the trivialization because everyone knows these are games. I do think, though, that they they serve to desensitize the consumer 
to graphic violence. And I will give you this. When I came in to meet with the president and the VP uh, for that company to do the dialogue and the script, the, the video games are done backwards. Uh, it, it's, it, it's the animators, and the script is the last thing that's done, which striking to me, but that's the way they do business. And I had never seen one of the games. So I sat down in their theater, the you know, company theater, nice, plush, beautiful room. Mm-hmm. And they ran, they're called levels. But it was pretty much everything that was going to be in the game. And I was, I won't say stunned. I won't say upset. Uh, gobsmacked, as as you say, over in, in Great Britain, probably. <laughs> yes, we do. That's our I term. Didn't... I'll let you use it. <laughs> okay, thank we, you. We use many of your terms. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but I didn't like it. It was so realistic. I did not like it. I didn't like the feel of it. Uh, it was just like I was there. And it has that dreamlike quality that you have in combat. Now, that's interesting. Uh, A dreamlike quality. What did I have? Okay, could you explain that? I've, I've heard, for instance, the, the term used by people who have seen severe action. They talk about the, the thousand-mile-away stare that uh, comes well, upon people. Um, that's afterwards, yeah. That's afterwards. When you're actually in combat, mm-hmm. you just, just described a dreamlike state. Uh, I'll try to explain it first to young soldiers in their first combat. And their first combat is like their first parachute jump or other things like that. Everything seems so fast that you're always catching up. And and, and and it's just overwhelming to you. And then as you gain experience, it, it slows down and becomes a, kind of a natural time. And once, not everyone achieves this, you'll get to a place where in the action itself, Everything you're viewing is in slow motion, and, and, and you're moving at your normal speed, whatever that is, and you're omniscient. You see everything. You feel everything. Uh, nothing can come up around you. It's like you have 360 sensory perception, and you see what you have to see as far as using your weapon, shooting. You don't really hear the shot. You feel it. You you know it's there, but you don't hear the loud report. These, these sorts of things. And the games, when I, when I watched that game, those different levels, it had that feeling to me. I, I went into that state, and, and it was so realistic, and I know I'm watching a presentation, a cartoons, really. But uh, it was bothersome to me. And when we finished and the two execs asked me what I thought, I, I, I was really stumbling over what to tell them. And I, and I just did tell them it is exceedingly, exceedingly realistic. And one of the, the VP told me, we have a lot of studies by psychologists and others, and what we want to do is give the participant of the game the sense of power. And so then you've, you've, you've succeeded. 
You certainly do that. But do you think that's healthy or unhealthy? No, I don't think it's healthy. The same as I don't think combat is healthy. You know, I'm, I'm living with the results of that myself. How do, you so live, how, how do you live with the results of that today? I have chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is football players get it. It was originally called pugilistic dementia from my brain being rattled in the skull from thousands of explosions. I have uh, severe PTSD and uh, uh, oh, what's, what's the other major depressive disorder? all brought on from that principally from the CTE. But how, how does the depressive disorder manifest itself, Eric, in your life? Uh, suicidal tendency. I, I battled that for about three years. And then I attempted it this year, early in the year. Earlier in this year, you attempted it. February, February the 14th of this year, I made a suicide attempt. And with that, I finally wound up with the treatment and diagnosis of what's going on. And with medication, I feel like a normal, good good old happy Eric Haney again. But it took a while. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America, and I'm speaking with the author, the actor, warrior, soldier, human being, Commander Sergeant Major, retired, Eric L. Haney. Eric, yes. it's extremely sobering to hear you say that um, you attempted to take your life and nearly succeeded mm-hmm. this year. Mm-hmm. People listening, I get it, and I think the majority of people get it, but there were some who would say, oh my gosh, this man is in television, he's a successful writer, yeah. he's a successful actor, he's been in motion pictures, um, he's been honored and recognized for his multiplicity of talents and uh, and has, has just been well received. How could he possibly be depressed and want to take his life? What would you say to those persons who don't understand? Just that, friend, you don't understand. You don't understand. Uh, you know, that attempt I fought for, for right at three years uh, every day and just on and on and on. It's... It's damaged, it's done internally, and you can't see it. And most of us, my peers, we're really good at hiding it, you know, because we're strong men. I always mm. looked at myself, I said, I'm Iron Man. Nothing, mm. nothing can harm me. You know, I'm the person that friends and others come to when they're having emotional difficulties. Mm. You know, they can come and sit under the, in my shade. Uh but it just goes on and on. We, of my peers from Delta Day's original group, we have a very, very high suicide rate. And I only knew what it was from when I almost became one of those statistics. Eric, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this as a, if I may dare, consider myself mm-hmm. uh, at least a, not a newfound friend, perhaps, but uh, mm-hmm. an admirer. Oh, I hope so. Um, do you take precautions? I mean, do you, do you ensure that you don't have firearms around you? I mean, things yes. that, because that, that would seem to be wise to me not to have firearms for those down periods that hit you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when I, I was in the 
Veterans Administration Hospital in Tuscaloosa, which specializes in this. Because uh, I was going to shoot myself in VA hospital parking lot. Uh, why there? Well, that's interesting. Why? Because I knew they would. I knew they would handle the body, and it was far enough away from my home that no one that knew me would see it. And you were considerate and concerned about other people around you that you love. Yes. 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 You don't want them to see that. That's that's why I had not done it years earlier. My parents were alive, uh, daughter, wife, people around here, my friends, uh, all of those. I, I don't want to get off into it, but I, you know, it's one of the things that happens is you make a plan, the suicide plan. Uh, that's when they, that's when caregivers know that it's serious. You know, do you have a plan? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I certainly do. But, but uh, Eric, I'm going to ask you if, if you don't mm-hmm. mind, and anything you don't want to respond to, you don't have to. I, I will. Do you feel loved? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I have such wonderful friends, and a cadre of very close friends. My and my wife, obviously, uh, my family, my brothers and sisters. Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And that, and that's very, very meaningful. And then just a wide number of friends and some of them that I don't even really know. Uh, uh, you know, they write to me or come see, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I what, do. What, what prevented you from pulling the trigger in the Veterans Hospital oh. parking lot? What, what, was, what was the thing? I had gotten out of my, gone in my truck. I drove as far as I could before I having to refuel. I was actually in Montgomery, Alabama, which is about four hours from my home. And I called my brother, and this was nine in the morning. I called him knowing he was at work and he wouldn't answer his phone to leave a message that this is where I was. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and uh, for him to contact the VA in, in Montgomery. Don't tell my wife yet. And left the message. Uh, got out of the truck, and I was going to sit in the back of it and shoot myself in the bed of the truck so the blood wouldn't run out on the ground. And as I sat down on the rear of the truck and was clicked the safety off with my pistol, the phone rang. And it was my brother. I looked at it. At first, I was not going to answer. And I said, no, it's Lowell. And uh, my brother, he's younger than I. He's a very wise man. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, you can't understand, unless you've gone through it, how overwrought a human being is at that point. Uh, but I couldn't talk. And he spoke to me, and he just said, take your time, Eric. Because I'd called him in a similar condition last year uh, when when the CTE had been diagnosed and I had some other things going on. And and I uh, asked him to, to be my guardian as, as I lost my mentality. Yes. But, in, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he just said, wait, come on, hang on, hang on. Uh, no hurry. You talk when you're ready. And... Finally, I was able to tell him where I was and what I was going to do. 
And we just talked a while. And he said, how close are you to the entrance of the building? I said, I can see it across the parking lot. I parked in the far corner. He said, why don't you go on inside? And I told him, I said, Lowell, I can't do it. I'm scared. Mm. I'm scared of it. What, said, what, what, what were you scared of? Uh, I don't Eric? know. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. Don't have. I, I just can't can't tell. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of things too, and, and you know, with, with, with professionals working with folks like myself, and they'll say, when you say or someone you know like this says, "I don't know," it's true. They don't. Right. right. They don't. They can't. Not not just not cannot articulate it, but just they can't mentally form it. But anyway, finally, I agreed. I said, "Okay, I'll go." And uh, well, it took me three times. I started for the emergency room entrance, couldn't do it, came back. Did a second time, got a little further. And the third time, there was a guy coming out. He was walking out, veteran, had a ball cap on with a bronze star up on the, on the front of the cap. And, and he said, hey, how you doing, brother? Hmm. And I said, doing all right. And... I made it in the door then. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. They say there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. But mm -hmm. in this day and age, perhaps there is. Are you a man Maybe. of faith at all? A man of faith? Yeah. Are you a man of faith at all? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I am. And have you derived any comfort in those moments or... Uh, I'm not saying you're dismissive of God. That's not what I'm saying at all. No. Um, is the idea of a protective agent, God, overseer, confidant, accessible to you, or is that of no help in those moments? No, I, I don't know if I look for assistance then. Uh, I believe in the universe. It's my best way to describe it. I guess probably would say I was a Taoist. Uh, but when I'm in the Middle East, I go to mosque with my friends. When I'm in L.A., I go to temple with my friends. That's what, you know, I believe there's something to be found everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I certainly believe there's some entity that, that has lent me a hand over many periods of my life because some days I just say I shouldn't be here yet still. Mm -hmm. well, one friend said, Eric, you've been playing on house money for about, 50 years now. <laughs> Is your friend a, a gambler? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he was, a, he was an old soldier. He understood the idiom. He did. <laughs> Let's talk about your earlier days. Um, mm -hmm. We know, for instance, that you were in Iran for Operation Eagle Claw, which was certainly an ill-fated mission. In 1980, the United States mm -hmm. launched Operation Eagle Claw to end what was the Iran hostage crisis with a commando raid, of which you were mm -hmm. part. And you were inside a parked C-130 tanker transport aircraft that caught mm -hmm. fire and then exploded when a Navy RH-53D helicopter pilot, uh, uh, helicopter piloted by a Marine air crew, collided. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. After that debacle, uh, after that real heinous mm -hmm. series of events, you and other Delta operators were told to pretty much take a vacation and to avoid uh, the media's scrutiny. How did you feel about it going wrong when the whole world knew it went wrong? 
I'll give you a little something on that. We came, when we made our way back to the States, we went back to the farm, uh, Camp Perry, CIA camp. And our handler there said, what would you guys like to do? So we'd like to go fishing. That's what I came up with. And, and several others said, yeah, let's go fishing. So we had some uh, little boats, and we were out on one of the lakes fishing. Beautiful day, enjoying ourselves. And my teammate, Jay, well, J.D., I'll leave it at that. I just might give his last name, so I don't have permission. But he said, you know, Eric, here we are having a grand time. The rest of the world is going crazy, and we're the ones that caused it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very difficult. Now, after uh, Iran, Operation Eagle Claw, um, you were involved in 1981 in Honduras. Uh, Honduras was not an easy assignment at all. And then after that, you worked in Beirut uh, during 1982. And the Marines operation in Lebanon was was, uh, very dicey. And then after that, you went into Grenada. Uh, under Operation Urgent Fury, and this was under Ronald Reagan. I remember it very well as as the former uh, occurrences. And in 1983, during the U.S. invasion of Grenada uh, in Operation uh, Urgent Fury, uh, there were helicopters that came under heavy fire, enemy fire, and they discovered that the the prison, in fact, was empty, which was part of your mission to to enter into the, the prisons. And the raid was called off. Uh, and it was kind of embarrassing, and uh, some people said a dubious mission uh, with with not the desired results. As a soldier, as somebody highly trained, as somebody in special services who knows what you're doing, as do your comrades, how do you deal with the public spectacle of things not going as well as you would like? And that's happened twice to you. It happened in Iran, and it happened again mm-hmm. in Grenada. How do you deal with it? Uh, I've never thought about the public perception. Good. <laughs> you know, I, I just I could care less about it. Uh, uh, I, at the time, and my comrades are very. We don't like to not come out on top. We severely, severely dislike not not uh, not prevailing. Yes. And we severely dislike being used for no real reason. And did you feel used? Oh, let's see, Granada, of course. Yes. Yeah, we we all knew. I was in, the week before I was in South Korea working with Korean Special Forces Brigade uh, and that they were preparing their security plans for when Korea was to host the Olympics. And I was in the airport getting ready to come home, and I saw the news of the Marine barracks, the bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut. I thought, wow, geez. As you know, it's it's a 24-hour flight by the time you get from Far East to the East Coast of the U.S., and I landed in uh, Fayetteville, finally, there at uh, Fort, near Fort Bragg, and one of my teammates' wife was there picking up a relative, and she said, hey, Eric, why don't you go straight on in? The guy's got called in. I'll tell your wife where you are. So off I went. Walked into the building and 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 it's obviously we're going on a mission. So I came walking down the hallway. One of my friends has a cart full of ammunition and equipment, uh, rolling it to the loadout room, and and I said, "Hey, we're uh, going to Beirut, huh?" 
He said, no, we're going to Granada. I said, Granada? What the Why? What in the world are we going to go to Granada? But so we did. And uh, the difficulty in Granada was nobody knew what the mission was. I think we we loaded out on Tuesday, I think. It's a while ago now. And uh, getting a, some sort of plan, what are we going to do? And finally, it's okay, we're going to hit Richmond Hill Prison and this other prison, Fort Frederick, I believe. A squadron was going to hit. And uh, we had Black Hawk helicopters at that point. And we had no maps. We had some hand-drawn sketches of the terrain. And what had happened was there was another little country in the Caribbean that we had practiced to invade. And then that mission went away with political situation changed in that country. But the Joint Chiefs of Staff decided to use that plan as the template for Granada because there was no other plan. Was that wise or not wise in your estimation? No, but this was a knee jerk to take the heat off the White House uh, for the bombing of the Marine barracks. Ah, okay. We'll give them something else. So politics. Give the public something else. Yeah, it's politics. Diversion of attention. So. Yeah, take the attention away. One of yeah. many things, uh, Eric, and let me just say to our listening audience, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I don't think I've had a more enthralling guest, certainly not, oh, than goodness. Commander Sergeant Major Retired Eric L. Haney. You know him from his work, his book, Inside Delta Force, which came out in 2002. You also know him from his uh, television series, uh, working with um, uh, David Mamet. You know him from uh, appearances in films as presidents and generals and all manner of things. You simply know him. Who could not? And um, I want to say that one of the many things I admire about you, Eric, is your candor, your complete candor and mm. your openness. You once said this from a documentary. U.S. foreign aid is principally military aid. We export weaponry, and we don't give it away. We sell it. It's a huge moneymaker, you know. My belief is the U.S. military is kept now at a small critical mass, just sufficient to absorb weapon sales. And look at the price. My God, it gets down to this. When I look at it, who are our natural enemies? We have none. They don't exist. Now, that's an extremely intriguing statement. You say we don't have enemies. They don't exist. What do you mean no, by I that? Don't, I, don't, I say we don't have natural enemies. Ah, okay. Specify what do you mean by natural enemies? Who, who is a natural enemy? Who, who if... If, if there were no pretext, who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? Uh, every once in a while now, we say Venezuela. Venezuela's no threat to us. Uh, or we certainly beat the drum against Iran. Iran used to be a great friend. I wonder what happened there. Well, we know what happened. I'm, I'm not the greatest student of American history, although I try to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm in love with this country, as you know. And I always say, mm -hmm. born British, uh, British by birth, American by choice. So I'm trying uh, to catch up. Yeah. I think there was a thing called the Monroe Doctrine, which said mm -hmm. that the U.S. United States was not to arbitrarily get involved in, in actions around the world. Am I correct in that? Was that the Monroe? No, the Monroe Doctrine really told the European powers 
at the time, uh, no more colonialism. Don't, don't, you're not going to be the ones of influence in this hemisphere. Okay, well, maybe I'm confusing it with the Marshall Plan then. What, what was the... The Marshall Plan was uh, a genius plan. On It was the antithesis of after the First World War, where the U.S. paid to rebuild Europe. Okay. All right. Well, I Germany, I have failed you know, U.S. history before a large audience, which is fine. <laughs> so I'll get equal time sometime. I'll, I'll ask Americans about British history. Okay. But the point yeah. is this: oh there was there was this doctrine I thought that's that for a long time, uh, you know, don't get involved in in wars abroad and, and what have you. Mm-hmm. And it would seem to me that when you use the term natural enemy. That that's part of it. You're saying that we, we don't have an immediate truth threat very often before we start to engage and, you know, load ships up and cargo planes and what have you. Is that what you're saying, or am I misconstruing I, it? No, I, I, I am. I am. And, and that can be debated by anyone to say, oh, well, we have these enemies, we have these opponents. I say natural enemies. There, there, there are some regions in the world where, where there are. You know, we don't look at Mexico as a natural enemy. Well, Mexico, in a certain sense, looks towards us as that, as the potential of being one. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we we took a good bit of Mexican territory once upon a time. Uh, so, you know, a natural enemy. Who is a natural enemy? You know, the Europeans and continental Europeans, uh, there, are, there are those feelings still. You know, but they've been sublimated, thank goodness, thank goodness, you know, because of ethnic and national frictions, territorial frictions that have gone on. Eric, I would like Mm -hmm. to conclude um, Mm -hmm. by asking you a question that troubles many males. Um, Mm -hmm. I find you to be one of the most articulate, perceptive, insightful persons I've spoken to in a long time and earnest Mm -hmm. and and candid. Masculinity. We spoke about it briefly before. Um, some people say it's endangered now because others uh, are trying to, if you will, restrain the natural instincts of masculinity. But young men between about the age of 12 and I would say perhaps to about the age of 22 are often very insecure about what it means to be a man. You <clears throat> most definitely strike me as a man, not filled with yourself, not puffed up, to use a British expression, you might be considered a man's man. Mm-hmm. What is your definition of masculinity? A gentleman. A gentleman in this manner, it's the first duty of the, of the strong to protect the weak, not to prey on them, to protect them. And, and, and I think a man learns much from the males around him. Boy, he learns so much from the males around him. But a man also learns how to be a gentleman from his mother. Yes. She teaches you what's what's appropriate and what's not. And if you grew up in this part of the country, mama was real quick to give you a lesson. Uh, to be a strong person is to care for others. Yes. You know, to provide refuge and, and whatever that means. Sometimes it's physical, uh, certainly emotional, certainly emotional. Commander Sergeant Major Eric L. Haney, I want to thank you for you and men like you and women for allowing us to sleep at night in peace because we know that you are there at the ready. I want to thank you for taking and being willing to take on, even though you didn't expect it, the psychological scars of having fought and sometimes being asked to do the impossible, many times being asked Mm -hmm. to do the impossible. 
I want to thank you for your creativity, for your artistry, your well-roundedness, your candor and your honesty. And I want to thank you for being a stellar example of what it means to be an American man. God bless you, sir. Thank you, Dr. Allen. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's just Allen. God bless. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. If you or someone you care about is considering suicide, consider making a call to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Press 1 if you are a veteran or in the military. You can also send a message to the Crisis Text Line at 741-741.